before I pray this morning, I feel led to share with you so that you can be in prayer that at 2 o'clock this afternoon, there will be a memorial service for a young man. Perhaps you heard on the news a young man named David Grove, 31 years old, shot to death in the line of duty last week as a game warden in Pennsylvania. That boy is out of my youth group. Uh, from Independent Bible Church days, and uh, his mom and dad, Dana and Lucy Grove, are, uh, were longtime members at Independent Bible Church. And at 2 o'clock this afternoon, the Waynesboro High School will be filled with several thousand law enforcement officers, family and friends, the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, I believe, and a number of leading officials, as well as uh, state game and biology officials from across the country. I noticed uh, Montana, Wyoming, all over game officials will be there. So as I pray for God to minister his word here today, I just thought it would be good for us to lift up a prayer together in our hearts for this family as they have a most difficult ordeal of burying their young adult son today. It does in a fashion relate as well to the topic of our message today. And so Father, we humbly enter your presence, but boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, And grateful that we have a one, a high priest, who uh, has uh, uh, related to these kinds of days. One who has been touched and who lived out and understands what it is to weep and to feel the weight of sin. And yet, though we have a perfectly righteous Lord Jesus who never sinned and who now sits at your right hand on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit as well as the Lord Jesus right now on behalf of the Grove family. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, hold them up today at 2 o'clock. I pray specifically for Pastor Mark Johnson as he preaches the word today. And the gospel goes out to many, many ears who perhaps rarely, if ever, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ made clear. And I pray that uh, you would just use this funeral service today in a great way. And then, Lord, bless uh, Dana and Lucy and their family as they process all of the emotions of this injustice and this heinous act. And I pray that you would encourage them through it somehow, as only you can do. Fathers, we open our Bibles once again, as is our practice at this hour. Please use it, encourage it, us, and strengthen us through it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, yesterday after yesterday afternoon, I received a phone call from my wife, Janet, and she had spent the day with many ladies, not that many, about a dozen ladies from our church, but several hundred ladies from the area over at the Independent Bible Church at a ladies' conference. You have seen it advertised, perhaps, in the bulletin and on the screens for the last several weeks, and that event happened yesterday. And Janet was just filled up by the messages of the day by the speaker, a most remarkable lady named Carol Kent. Perhaps you've heard of her or read her books. Let me tell you just briefly uh, what has become uh, the foundation of her story and her gospel ministry and her ministry of encouragement to ladies. She's been a Bible teacher for many years, but not that many years ago, perhaps um, in the early 2000s, I don't know the exact details, and, and even perhaps as I retell what I understood I heard yesterday from Janet, um, I might have a few details wrong, but you will get the idea. But this Carol Kent and her husband had a boy. They had one child, a son, and they loved this boy. They raised this boy. He was 
by all counts, an outstanding young man. He was a leader in his church youth group. He loved the Lord Jesus. He was uh, uh, received after graduation from high school an appointment to the Naval Academy. He excelled at the Naval Academy. He went on for uh, nuclear training. And while he was in training, he met and married a woman who had been in a very difficult, uh, abusive marriage. And she had two children from that marriage. And, and he, as well as this Carol Kent, the speaker, and her husband, just dearly loved this girl and loved her children, her two little girls. It wasn't, however, that long after the marriage, maybe a year and a half as I understand it, and Janet is, and I are at our kitchen island now last night as she recounted the whole day for me. And um, she said that uh, about a year and a half after this boy was married to this girl with these two little girls, um, they received uh, uh, one of those phone calls that you never want to receive, and it was from law officers saying that their son had been arrested for murder. And indeed, that's what happened out of a rage and an anger and in a protective spirit for these two little girls that he loved in this marriage. He had met their father, their biological father, and gunned him down in, in cold-blooded murder because of ongoing abuse in his visits with those girls. And to protect them, he murdered the husband. Out of that situation, Carol Kent has a testimony and a story that is just most remarkable, and God is using her in so many different ways across the country. One of the things that Janet was telling me that Carol Kent shared as to how God has used this tragedy in their lives is, is in this way, and this is just one example, I understand, of many ways that God has been at work. Well, in the meantime, her son, I think acknowledging that he did not handle that situation correctly, um, but he is now incarcerated for life without any chance of parole. There is no chance in the state of Florida. And um, he has become an outstanding Christian leader in the prison. He teaches Bible classes. He has a tremendous impact and ministry. And I understand that Carol and her husband, wherever she's speaking around the country and her husband travels with her, that they will take a, a red eye home at night on weekends or get up early Sunday morning so that they can be back because they do church every Sunday morning. And as far as I know, right about now are with their son in that prison and they meet weekly for prayer and Bible study and encouragement and make sure that they're there with him. Well, as she goes around the country sharing this story, she encounters people who have tragic, sinful, uh, life-changing occurrences and tragedies in their lives. And, and one time after she shared her story, uh, as I understand it, a woman who uh, was now in her adult life, in maybe her 30s, let me say uh, something like that, she came up to Carol and she said, did you say such and such a prison? And, and Carol said, yes, that's where my son is. And she said, well, my mother was murdered by a man while she worked at a store one night. A man came in and murdered her, and he is incarcerated in that same prison. My sister and brother, I believe there were three siblings of this woman who was murdered. We have been praying for that man to be saved. And I wonder if you could contact your son and, and see if he knows where that man is. And if he has any contact with him, could he share Christ with that man? And so Carol, I understand, wrote a letter to her son and so forth. And in the, in the dialogue that went back and forth or as she met with her son the next time, he said, yes, I know him. He's my best friend here. He knows the Lord. He loves the Lord. And we're serving the Lord together here. Well, that man uh, had asked Carol to, or through 
Carol, and that man then asked Carol to connect with those folks, the children whose mother he had murdered, and asked, would it be okay if I send you a letter? You see, about five years ago when I came to know Christ, I wrote you a letter. And I just want to tell you how sorry I am, and I want to ask for your forgiveness. And I want to tell you that I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. Well, indeed, they received the letter, and I understand since then have had meetings together. Can you imagine being there when the children of the murdered mother meet the the murderer, and there is a bond in Christ, a oneness in Christ? I want to tell you something. That is a remarkable thing, isn't it? But can I tell you that I think there is probably no more difficult grace in the Christian life than forgiveness. Do you know that feeling? And I would like to suggest that particularly it is one of the hardest, most difficult things to do that we are called upon as believers in the Lord Christ to forgive someone who has needlessly and horribly sinned against us in such a way and to such a degree that it reconfigures our life. Like Dana and Lucy Grove going to their boy's funeral today for the most ridiculous of reasons. Needlessly gunned down by a criminal. Foolish. Sometimes the kind of sin that people commit against us is even so difficult and so life-impacting, and some of you know what this means and what it feels like, that it becomes literally the defining moment of your life. And you have been so deeply offended that it is very, very difficult to come to a place where you have the grace to forgive them even as Christ has forgiven you. I want to tell you that today's message is the first of of a couple in a sequence. Uh, I don't really know where it's going to end up completely, but I know this, that chapter 42 of Genesis, and I invite you to turn there, is followed by chapter 43, 44, and 45, and it's all the same story. And we can only get through, by God's grace this morning, chapter 42. We're looking forward to the baptism of three adults and a child at the close of our service, and I must allow time for that, and I'm attempting to be in Waynesboro by 2 p.m. to attend this memorial service. We'll see. In Genesis chapter 42, we have now, in the life of Joseph, the beginning of the reconciliation of Joseph with his brothers. You remember the story, don't you? And if you haven't been here, you need to reread it. But remember, and let's review the story and review the timeline so that we can put in context in chronological timeline, where we are in Joseph's life at this time. Remember, Joseph had the coat of many colors. He was obnoxious in his youth, and he shared openly his dream that his brothers would bow down to him. Even his father and mother would bow down to him one day. His father treated him different than the other sons because of his wife, uh, Rebecca. And so he had the coat on. And his brothers hated him. And the day that they jerked that coat off of him, threw him in a pit and and ignored his wailing screams and ended up, instead of murdering him, selling him to the Ishmaelite slave traders, which in turn led him down into Egypt and sold him into slavery. He was how old at that point? 17 years old. 
He was 17 years old. He's sold into slavery in Egypt. He ends up being purchased by Potiphar. You recall Potiphar had a beautiful, lonely wife who tried to lure him into sexual temptation and sin. And about what age did we conclude he was when he uh, ran from Potiphar's wife, leaving his jacket behind, evidence held against him, and unjustly put in prison? He was about how old? 10 years later, 27 years old. All right? He then is in prison for about three years. Remember the baker and the cupbearer. Thank you. I needed that. And the baker and the cupbearer. And remember, they had dreams. He interpreted their dreams. They forgot about him. And then one day, Potiphar had a dream. And Potiphar asked for help to interpret his dream. And the baker remembered Joseph. And in God's strategic, sovereign oversight at just the right time, God's man and a pagan king come together to save the world. And it's Joseph. He comes before, he comes before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's dream is interpreted. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The seven lean years, the seven years of famine. And with Joseph's godly insight, uh, he sets up the strategy, administrates the harvesting of the grain across Egypt in the plentiful years. And the silos are filled. The bunker silos are overflowing. There is so much grain harvested and captured that they don't even keep record of it. And how old was he when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream? He entered Pharaoh's service at age 30. Okay, then how many years was the first section of the dream? The seven years of plenty was how long? Yeah, it was seven years. So he was 37 years old when the first day of the eighth year began, right? And so we are now in our story in chapter 42, probably at least one or two years into that, perhaps. Because you see, when we begin to read, you'll see that the famine has spread around the world. Everything's dried up. There's no food. And it even is uh, uh, um, uh, impacting Jacob. That's Joseph's father. We haven't talked about Jacob for a while. And his ten brothers who were wicked. And uh, we, they are hungry now. And so their resources needed to run out until they got to the place where they were ready to go for food. Let me break down the story into five parts. The first part of the story we're going to begin with in chapter 41 and verse 56. And the first point is starvation. Starvation. Notice that when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Would you say the famine was severe in all the world? It was, wasn't it? And so uh, people are coming, and I take it that Joseph had carefully set up the administration of the distribution of the food across the country, but he personally maintained a position of leadership whereby individuals, particularly evidently from other countries, had to come check with him before he would approve of whether or not they would sell them grain. And so Joseph himself now has an office set up, he has his staff set up, and people are allowed to get a, a hearing with Joseph himself, second in command in the whole country, only second to the Pharaoh himself. Well, when Jacob learned back in Canaan, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, and I like this, it sounds just like an old dad to his no good sons, doesn't it? Why do you just keep looking at each other? 
He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt, so go down there and buy some food for us so that we may live and not die. Evidently, they are at a point where they are so hungry that they recognize that if they don't get some food pretty soon, they are literally going to starve to death. I want to tell you that when people get hungry, they will do anything to eat. Money becomes meaningless, and they will spend everything they have to get a loaf of bread. There are on record, biblically and in uh, secular history, there are numerous occasions where famines were so bad that parents have literally cooked and eaten their own children to survive. People with great wealth would give, uh, it's documented uh, not that long ago, there was a famine a few hundred years ago in Italy where a person gave uh, at that point, which was a vast amount, $2,500 for a couple of handfuls of flour so they could make one little loaf of bread and eat. Ladies giving away their pearls and their jewelry so that they can get a handful of flour to eat. And so there's starvation at hand and their very survival. Number two, Jacob knows they have to survive and so he sends his boys to Egypt. Verse three, then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. He had already lost Joseph. He wasn't about to lose his youngest, Benjamin. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. So we move from starvation to a strategy for survival to the great surprise. Number three, the great surprise. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, look at this. They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Bam! God said it would happen, didn't he? I'll tell you something. One thing we better learn out of Genesis and all these stories is that when God says something, you better pay attention. Because just because you think it might not happen doesn't mean beans. God said it, there it is. Those boys come in there and they don't even know it. They know they're in front of a king. Remember how old he was when they last saw him? 17 years old. He's now about probably 39 years old. Let's say there's 22 years has gone by. Joseph has changed a lot. Remember that he was the youngest boy apart from Benjamin, younger than he. And so he had all older brothers who were entering their adulthood years. Remember these guys, they were a rugged bunch. Remember some of them, uh, they did the circumcision thing and they killed a whole community remember judah he had three wicked sons we had a whole chapter given to judah three wicked sons that god killed off and and he prostituted with his daughter-in-law these guys are something but they're grown men and the last time they saw joseph he was 17 years old he's now 39 from 17 to 39 you change quite a bit Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers. Can you imagine the surprise? I don't believe that Joseph really anticipated ever seeing his brothers. I don't believe that. I think that he thought he would live out his years in Egypt. And I think he had a hope for that. And I really believe that his brothers, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I believe that his brothers thought he was dead. And you'll see later where it's implied in the text that when they're telling Joseph, without knowing it, that it's he, they say that we have a brother that's basically deceased. He's gone. He's old. We don't know where he is and he's dead. And so they have no inkling at all that they're in front of Joseph. Culturally, Joseph would be clean shaven. He would, of course, be dressed in his official robes and so forth. 
His brothers have been traveling, plus they're Hebrew. They would be big, bearded, bushy guys, all right, unshaven, and uh, coming in, and he recognizes who they are. Let's go back to our story. And here's the surprise, and it moves into number four, Joseph's strategy. Uh, Let me comment on this as well. I think that Joseph is surprised, and I think that as we read the text, you'll see that he kind of... He's kind of trying to figure out what to do with these guys. He's not exactly sure what he's going to say to them, and he's kind of quick thinking. I can kind of feel Joseph's mind really going fast all of a sudden. And he doesn't want to reveal himself to them right away. So it is possible that he has daydreamed about this moment. It is also possible that he really did believe that he would see his brothers again and he was waiting for the fulfillment of these boys to bow down to him and that he recognized as second in the command of Egypt that he now had the platform by which it would be very easy to to create a scenario where his brothers would bow down to him. So here he is, regardless of what's going on through his mind, let's read what the Bible tells us is happening. We move from Joseph's surprise to his strategy. And so let's read verse 6 again. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them. Okay, so it was not on the front burner, at least. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, man, he really remembers this. Here's something, you know, he's already, they've already bowed down. And, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lived in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and here it is, and one is no more. I think they believed him to be dead, never imagining that for 22 years he could live through the conditions of slavery in Egypt, that he would have died, the mortality rate of slaves being such. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. Do you think Joseph kind of enjoyed that moment? <laughs> oh, man. Now, you need to understand something. Let's, 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 let's think about this for a second. Joseph has been incredibly hurt by his brothers, incredibly abused. They wanted to murder him. It was at the last minute that they decided to throw him in a pit. The boys themselves are going to admit in just a minute that they can still hear in their echoing in their minds and memories the wails and the screams of their brother as they threw him in the pit and as the Ishmaelites led him away tethered to the back end of a camel or something as he screamed and wailed for his brothers, please don't do this. Save me. And now, and now, he's been in prison because of these guys. 
Who knows the abuses? Psalm 105 says he had an iron ring put around his neck on a chain. Can, do you have any trouble imagining how easy it would be for Joseph to hate these guys and to be living for the day when he could squish them? And not only that, the reason they're so upset right now, he's accused them of being spies, and they know they're in Egypt, they know they're completely at his mercy, and that all he has to do is snap his fingers, and their heads will roll, and their blood will run down the drain. All he has to do is say, get them out of here. Put them away. And he has the power to do it. How would you respond if one of the defining elements of your life was a heinous abuse and sin and offense when you were 17 years old and you now have the power to squish the living daylights out of the offender, what would you do? See, usually we don't have that kind of power. Usually we daydream about that kind of power. Usually we just... We just uh, encourage our hearts and strengthen ourselves with the imaginations of all the things we wish we could do to those kinds of offenders. But all oh, the hatred can boil, can it? The bitterness is there. And Joseph has the ability to lop off their heads. He has the self-control and the discipline and the godly spirit to show restraint. He's a pretty incredible guy, isn't he? Let's read on. Joseph's strategy comes to light. On the third day, verse 18, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. He gives them a clue. I know Elohim. I think these guys are so secular and crusty in their thinking that they are not sensitive. But he gives them a little clue. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. He knows that he can minister to his family. He wants more information about his family, though. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. And they said to one another, now notice where their minds go. Notice the guilt in these guys. Surely we are being punished because our brother, of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you, remember Reuben is the oldest, I told you guys not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must have given accounting for his blood. See, they think he's dead. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. At that point, Joseph recognizes his brothers feel guilty about what they did. It touches his heart. Verse 24, he turns away from them and he begins to weep. But then he turned back and he spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Simeon was one of the bloodiest of the brothers, most ruthless. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and they left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey and he saw that his silver was in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brother. Brothers, here it is in my sack. The fifth breakdown in our reading is that we have serious problems in the boy, in the, among the brothers. They have a serious problem. 
They have one brother they left back in prison. They're on their way home with the grain. They stop the first night. The one guy opens up his, his feed sack to feed the animals and for them to make some bread that night. And there's his money that he supposedly paid for all of his grain that they were carrying on their donkeys. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling. These are grown men and they are scared to the core. What is this that God has done to us? Little by little, God is waking them up, isn't he? And when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. And they said, The man who is lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. And then the man who is lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are an honest man. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me so I will know that you are not spies but honest men. And then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. And when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, notice the emotional, spiritual weakness of Jacob at this point. He is an old man who is worn out and he is taken with the fear and the the precariousness of the whole situation. And he immediately, in a wailing voice, I hear it, says, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Woe is me. Then Reuben said to his father, get this, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, that is Benjamin, and I will bring him back. I don't know what he was thinking exactly. You think about that for a minute. Okay, Joseph's dead. Simeon's probably going to get whacked in the prison. You want to take Benjamin. The old man doesn't believe that Benjamin's coming back. And uh, Reuben says to him, and if they don't come back, after you lose all your sons, you can kill two more of your grandsons. It's like, oh, that'll really comfort me to get to go kill a couple of my grandsons because my sons are being killed. So, but it's funny how our minds work when we're afraid and, and it's obviously he's putting a weight of responsibility on himself is, is the word picture there. But I just kind of found that interesting that somehow Jacob would find consolation in murdering two of his sons, grandsons in that context. But Jacob said, verse 38, my son will not go down with you. His brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey that you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. We need to stop right there in their conversation at the end of chapter 42. And let's just step back from the passage for a minute and let's realize what's happening. And let's make a little bit of application and we'll move into the baptism time. As I have been looking at this passage and breaking it down and recognizing that we are now at such an emotional, pivotal moment in the relationship of this family, I couldn't help but make the observation of what sin has done to this family. These guys are a mess right now. Their old man father is wailing. He's already got Simeon dead. He's refusing to send Benjamin back. They're hopeless on the return trip. They all have their silver. They think they're going to be uh, executed when they get back to Egypt. They're going to starve to death. He's hopeless. His beloved son Joseph has been gone for 22 years. He's emotionally drained. He's spiritually weak. And the family is in disarray. And it's all 
because of sin 22 years before in the family. Let me just click off, see if you agree with me, what sin has done to this family. First of all, it has broken their father's heart. It has broken their father's heart. What a good idea. Beat down this punk kid and sell him to the Ishmaelites and that'll solve our problem. And all it did was break their father's spirit and heart. And all their days, they fall asleep listening to their, their papa moaning on his bed, longing for his Joseph. It has destroyed family unity. They have been at each other. They bicker. They don't trust one another. Number three, this sin has scarred their family memories. Every time they look at a photo album of their family, if they could, who's missing? Did you see how, how front and center the reality of Joseph and their behavior towards Joseph was that the minute that they thought they were all going to be slaughtered in Egypt, it was because they sold their brother into Egypt. It's right there. They've been guilty. But this is the subject nobody talks about. Nobody talks about this. The brothers never breathe a word because if they did, their pop might find out about it. And they can't let him ever know that they've lied to him. One sin leads to another sin which destroyed the unity of this family. It has scarred the memories of this family. It has undermined, number four, family trust. That's what sin does. Sin in the family and sinful behavior towards one another destroyed the trust. I'll bet you these boys wouldn't turn their backs on one another for 22 years. They saw what they did to their younger brother and they know in a heartbeat it could be them. Don't you think, number five, that sin 22 years before had stolen the family blessing? If it weren't for Joseph, they would all starve to death. And don't you think God would have blessed them where they were in Canaan, where he called them to live, if they hadn't been so filled with sinful anger and unjust behavior? It had stolen the family blessing and it had created corporate guilt, which we see spilling over immediately in there saying, God is doing this to us because we've sinned against our brother. It broke their father's spirit. It destroyed family unity. It scarred family memories. It undermined family trust. It stole family blessing. It created corporate guilt. Hey, I got an idea. Let's sin. Let's bring sin into our home. Let's do things that we know are wrong and that our father and mother taught us not to do. And, and it'll really help us today if we just do this. You know why that is such a, let me say, dumb thing to think? And how often in our flesh are we bent to sin and take matters in our own hands? But what you must never forget about sin is that, number one, sin does not resolve itself. Sin never resolves itself. Sin is like a toxic commodity. And sin, at the human level, left to itself is like a real thing. It's like becomes a tangible thing. They sinned and that sin is ever before God and it is ever before them. It is like some kind of toxic waste that they have in the barrels in their basement and the barrels are leaking and they don't know what to do with it. And no matter where they put it, in the attic, in the barn, in the backyard, the toxic waste just continues to drip out of the barrel. They can't get rid of it. Humanly speaking, they cannot remove the sin. And that's one of the big deals, young people, why when we make sinful choices against a holy, righteous God, it is so ignorant to do that, it removes God's blessing, and it never goes away. That's why these guys have the past right in their face in the present today. 
What they did 22 years ago is the very thing that is consuming them today. It's the root of their whole problem. It doesn't go away. You can't do anything about it on your own. Secondly, sin never improves circumstances. Sin never solves the problem. When that boy took that gun and killed that man, okay, he solved part of the problem. And there was, in essence, a justice that we can all relate to. Does, does a horrendously horrific, abusive father of little girls deserve to be shot between the eyes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can say that on the front page of the paper, that Pastor Van says sexual abusing father should be shot between the eyes. All right? They deserve the death penalty. But, but you can't break the law. And you can't sin doing it. And so then it doesn't solve the problem. And look at the domino effect of problems and pain and suffering. It's horrible. Sin doesn't improve the conditions. Sin also, thirdly, will eventually expose itself. And that's what's happening here. And that's why sin is such a big deal. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3 quickly, shall we please? And, and like I said, this is the beginning of several messages because we've had to stop before Joseph has reconciled with his brothers. But I don't want to leave it on such a negative note. And I want to show you three things that we need. This will take just a minute on how to deal with life impacting sin. How do I deal then with life defining life impacting atrocities against me and sin? Number one, I need a makeover. Number two, I need to understand mercy. And number three, I need a model. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, who's that? That's believers in the Lord Christ. That's redeemed ones. Those who have put the old away, have put on the new. Their sin is forgiven by the blood of Christ. They're part of the family of God. They are Christians. And we, this is why we're not to put bullets between people's eyes. Because we are chosen People, holy and dearly loved, we are to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. We need a complete makeover because left to ourselves, we can't do it, can we? What we do best is take a ball bat and swing it upside the guy's head. That's what we do to even the playing field. That's what we do. If you're going to sin this much against me, then I'm going to make your head roll when I'm the king and you come and bow down to me. That's what we do. But it's when we have the makeover of the beauty of Christ and we're a redeemed one and we're servants of the living Christ, we no longer think like the rest of the world. We have to put away the flesh and we have to walk in the spirit and we have to have a makeover And so if you are struggling at this level and you are struggling with with life-defining offenses and life-altering sins that people have done against you, you will never, ever get over it until you do the makeover because that's when we can think straight. Until you get to this level in your relationship with Christ, where he has remade you into a loving, patient, kind person that only his Holy Spirit can do. Number two, you need to understand mercy. Look what he says. Verse 13a, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Or to bear with that person 
That's mercy. I don't give them what they do deserve. That's what the definition of mercy is. Not receiving what I deserve. And Joseph showed mercy to his brothers right up front. We'll see how the story ends. By not giving them what they deserve. And thirdly, we need a model. 13b, look at it. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Here it is, 13b. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's our model. There it is. Now let me tell you something and ask you something. When our Lord Jesus went to the cross, did he deserve even one ounce of the pain and suffering and the rejection and the mocking? Did he deserve even an ounce of the injustice? Listen, even the best among us if we were crucified on a cross, deserve maybe a little bit of it because like when we, you know, pushed our little sister in the back and spit a spitball in first grade, even if that's the worst thing you've ever done, then you deserve a little bit of it. But our Lord Jesus went to the cross, what? As the perfect, spotless lamb who didn't deserve to be there. But he went in our place. It makes no sense that he would become sin for us. We're the sinner. He was the righteous, perfect Savior. There's the model. The one that they spit on, and the way you need to think about it is that we spit on, and that we beat with sticks, and that we beat with cat of nine tails, and that we laughed at, and that when he wanted a drink, we took vinegar and, and smeared a sponge of vinegar in his face. And then ran the spear in his side. He didn't serve any of it. And it says that as he has forgiven us. So what part, what part of your dirty, rotten, sinful record has Jesus not forgiven? What part of your dirty, rotten past that put him on the cross has he not forgiven? If you can find any part that he has not forgiven, that's how much you cannot forgive the person who has altered the course and direction of your life with their sinful behavior. You say, wait a minute, that's not fair, Pastor Van. He's deity, I'm not. And I will say this. I recognize that you might not be able to forgive that person right now. But let's go to a prison lobby in Florida. And let's find two girls and a guy whose mother was murdered. And let's listen in as they sit down and as the tears flow and as they share their commonness in Christ and as they have forgiven one another, doesn't bring their mama back, doesn't change the horrific nightmare they lived through when they got that phone call. But is that a beautiful thing that is otherworldly or what? Is that only the grace of our Lord Jesus right there? Is that not a life-changing dynamic? And to think that they will praise Jesus together in heaven forever. What a testimony. What a testimony. So where are you today? I don't know what's going on in your heart or your life. And like I said, you may not be ready today to be able to do all this, but are you ready today to tell the Lord, Lord, I've got some forgiving to do. And I need to no longer have as the defining moment of my life the day I was thrown in a pit. But I need, as the defining moment of my life, the day I looked at that person and I said, as Christ has forgiven me, 
I forgive you. Let's bow in prayer. Will you examine your heart for just a moment, please? It's difficult sometimes to tell ourselves the truth in a moment like this. And so, Father, we need your grace, and we need your spirit to convict us where it's needed. And, Lord, we need your enabling power so that we can begin to take the spiritual steps to living out the instruction of your word, whereby with the new set of clothing, the new makeover clothes that we have on of patience and kindness and mercy and love, that even as Jesus forgave us, that we can forgive those around us. Father, maybe there's a reason there's no spiritual power among us because we aren't living out what it is you've instructed. So show us and teach us and challenge us and change us, I pray. Father, for hearts that are broken and hurting and for those individuals here today who have as the defining moment of their life someone's heinous actions against them, would you bring comfort and would you encourage them and would you show them how to think Christ-like and to change and redefine their life by forgiveness. So in the days ahead and the messages ahead, teach us and grow us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.